Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Here's Armstrong and Getty. So the headline in the Wall Street Journal front page today, China's message to America, we're an equal now. And uh, that sent me scrambling, looking at uh, economic numbers over the years as I lay in bed at night. Isn't this a good way to spend your time? But uh, as China is the biggest world's economy by some measures, by by the measure most people use, their second, but growing and catching up to us every single day. As going back over the decades, how recently China is in the in the in that position? It's absolutely amazing. Um. Uh, looking at this list of the biggest economies, they've got the top 10 listed in 1980. China doesn't even show up in the top 10. Wow. Including countries like Canada and Italy. China can't even compete with Canada. I'm not sure I like the way you're saying Canada. Going back very many years. Yeah, It's it's absolutely amazing. And how did they grow that fast? With the help of the rest of the world, primarily the United States, letting them cheat and giving them all kinds of tax breaks and just doing doing anything you possibly could to give them a head start. We trying to grow. We fed them and jabbed them full of hormones like a state fair hog to try to get them big and involved in the world economy. And then they would liberalize and become a Jeffersonian democracy. Of course they would. Even in the year 2000, when we were uh, we were far and away the number one economy, Japan was number two. China was third. But like. Less than half of Japan hmm. and barely ahead of Germany and France and Britain as recently as 2000. And, and what's the population of Japan? I'm saying I 120 know. million. I don't know off the top of my head. Maybe but, Sean could check. Um, but China's growth is so fast. It's absolutely amazing. And as they kept pointing out in this Wall Street Journal piece, go ahead, Sean. Well, what was your guess? Why don't you just go ahead and tell me what it is? Well, because you were really close. I was. I just wanted 120 to... million, 121. I'm going to say 126. Ah, oh, well, they've had several babies recently. Um, I, I wasn't invited to the shower. <laughs> one of the points that made in the Wall Street Journal that previous leaders, uh, primarily Deng, but others, their idea was bide our time, keep our head down, grow, don't make any noises, don't let people know what we're doing here. All along, their whole point has to has been to become the dominant economic and military force in the world and make the rest of the world live by their rules. That's oh, China is asshole! That's been their plan since 1949, but they did a really good job of hiding it from the world. And uh, Xi's the first one to, to, to come out and say, you know what? We're just going to let you know what we're up to. We're going to dominate y'all, and there's nothing you can do about it at this point, so get used to it. Well, I appreciate the candor. Uh, a couple of points. Number one, Deng is pronounced dung, which brought me great delight during his entire uh, reign. And secondly, Jack, you're coming off as a doomsday clown. Oh, yeah, okay. So, only, uh, <laughs> so from, the Wall Street Journal, quote. <laughs> from the Wall Street Journal piece, the U.S. Co- is committed to helping Taiwan preserve its autonomy. This is going to the, be the flashpoint that gets us all into a war. As uh, we've got a headline today. Where did, where did I put that? China sends 25 warplanes into Taiwan's airspace. Um, they are making it clear that uh, the goal of having Taiwan be part of China is one of their uh, major accomplishments they're going to get in, in soon. So the Wall Street Journal jumps into that with the U.S. is committed to helping Taiwan preserve its autonomy. And we've got pledges going back to 1979. And the Biden team trumpets its plan to strengthen economic and political links to Taipei, the capital of Taiwan. Mr. Xi has made reunification with Taiwan, which Beijing regards as a breakaway province, a big part of his China dream, which we've talked a lot about of national revival. 
China's foreign ministry says of Mr. Yang's Anchorage warning, that was back up in the meeting from a couple of weeks ago when Abe Lincoln met with the, the people, <laughs> met with the people from China, not Abe Lincoln with the beard and the hat. He had nothing to do with it. You saw the confusion on my face. If only he were available. <laughs> Um, and they lectured us about what bad people they uh, we are. But the, their warning included the Chinese, uh, or the, um, uh, I'll just read it from the Wall Street Journal. China's foreign ministry says of Mr. Yang's Anchorage warning, the Chinese side pointed out that the Taiwan issue is related to China's sovereignty and territorial integrity and China's core interests. There is no room for compromise. No room for compromise is a pretty blanket statement. <laughs> so a little room. No room. And we Just don't, a teeny bit of room? We really don't have room for compromise if we're going to stay with our agreement from 1979. Right. And, uh, you know, the noises made indicate that we will. Although noises don't mean a lot when the uh, rubber meets the road. Yeah. Who knows? Soon after the Alaska meetings, Mr. Xi inspected Fujian, the Fujian province across the strait from Taiwan. Chinese airplanes in recent weeks have stepped up incursions into Taiwan's air defense zone, including just this weekend with the 25 warplanes. I got this story in my hand. That is, uh, well, that's provocative. Admiral Phil Davidson of the United States, who heads the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, warned the Senate Arms Committee earlier in March that China could try to take control of Taiwan by the end of the decade, perhaps in as little as six years. China might act rashly, says a senior U.S. official, because of an exaggerated belief that the U.S. is a declining power. And whether it's true or not, if they believe we are, they might make them act. Relations between the countries plummeted during the Trump's administration after both sides fought a two-year trade war to a wary truce. The U.S. president blamed Beijing for unleashing the coronavirus. Because they did. Because they freaking did. The whole world blames them. And this is the Wall Street Journal. China rejected the charges and labeled Secretary of State Mike Pompeo a doomsday clown. Not the only D.C. in the room, I might add. I um, I hired a doomsday clown for my son's birthday party one time. And it just, <laughs> All the kids were crying. Kids were crying. Did not go over. They well. didn't even eat their cake and ice cream. How unhappy does an eight-year-old have to be to not eat their cake and ice cream? I remember you talking about that at the time, the doomsday clown. You... He said he was going to make balloon animals, but he just made balloon mushroom clouds, <laughs> balloon ICBMs, then a balloon killer virus, which was prescient. Don't don't hire a doomsday clown. Life's short that you work pretty much all of it and then you die. All right. Any questions? <laughs> it's your doomsday clown. Exactly. With his size 15 red shoes and his... <laughs> Doom. <laughs> Back to the Wall Street Journal. After President Biden's election, academics and officials in Beijing reached out to America contacts to try to figure out whether the new administration would change course. They were quickly discouraged. Even before Mr. Biden took office, Chinese diplomats sought to schedule a high-level meeting between the two sides. People close to the matter say Biden officials never approved the request and instead repeatedly talked about working with allies to confront China. China's concerns were reinforced in January and when, when Mr. Biden's choice for Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, used his confirmation hearing to declare that China had committed genocide against Uyghur Muslims in the northwest region of Xinjiang. you got to give the Biden administration points for that, folks. Yeah, you got to abs- be fair. Do. Yep. China has called the charge the lie of the century, which is a, a heck of a thing to say. The Biden team shares its predecessor's view. I like the way they keep saying predecessor instead of Trump. 
The Biden team shares Trump's view of China as America's greatest military, technological, and economic challenger. From the new administration's perspective, Chinese provocations never since, never ceased. Beijing cut off imports from Australia over its call for an investigation into the origins of the COVID. Wow, just calling for an investigation gets you hammered by the dragon. Yeah, they stopped allowing uh, Australian wine, for instance, to come into the country because Australian leaders wanted to know, hey, where'd the COVID come from anyway? Total ban on delicious koala jerky. Skirmished with India over the country's Himalayan border and sought to intimidate Philippines and Vietnam ships in the South China Sea. Before that Alaska meeting a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. signaled a muscular approach. And I didn't know this behind-the-scenes maneuvering. And Biden, uh, the Biden team has not been getting much credit from the right for this. President Biden met online with the leaders of India, Australia, and Japan. Mr. Blinken and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, flew to Tokyo and Seoul to confer with security counterpoints and insisted that uh, Mr. Yang and Wang fly to Alaska for the U.S.-China session rather than meeting in Asia. So Biden had his top guys in China's backyard meeting with people that we say are part of standing up to China. And when China said, we want to meet with you, even though we're right there, we say, hey, why don't you come to Alaska and meet with us? Come mm. to our country. Uh, we're busy. It's, you know, that's, that's, that's a gesture. Boy, it's it's getting a little uh, dogs sniffing each other in the parkish as uh, deciding who is actually dominant. You say you're an equal. Let's see. The day before the Anchorage meeting, the U.S. expanded sanctions against two dozen Chinese officials over the repression of Hong Kong's pro-democracy protesters. Some U.S. foreign policy experts thought the Americans went overboard including Jeffrey Bader, a senior China official in the Clinton and Obama administrations, now a senior fellow at Brookings, who said, the more you assert you're not a declining power, the less convincing you are. Mm, I don't know if I believe that or not. Yeah, that's What do you think? Iffy. I don't know. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. Uh, Mr. You Wang. You have to make it. Listen, you don't want to be all talk and no action, obviously. Big talk and then fail to live up to it. On the other hand, in international diplomacy, you do have to make your intentions clear. Uh, leaving doubt is almost never helpful unless you're bluffing. And how is it just big talk when you're clearly the world's number one nuclear power? I don't, I don't understand that. If I'm the biggest, well, toughest guy in the room, is it big talk? Nobody's going to nuke anybody, though. I really Um, believe that. So it's about conventional arms and will to use them. Mr. Wang, the foreign minister, met his Russian peer in late March, prompting the nationalist Chinese newspaper Global Times to headline, China, Russia to break U.S. hold on world order. Oof. Then he traveled to the Middle East and signed that stuff with Iran that we talked about last week. So they're getting cozy with Russia and Iran. It's a high-stakes gamble for the Chinese, says Daniel Russell, a former Obama-China official. But it's not a gamble. Uh, they are certain to lose. So both sides talking very, very big, being very, very produ- provocative. I don't see how this possibly ends peacefully. Not entirely peacefully, no. This is one of those situations where there's about five different outcomes, and at least three or four of them are equally likely. It's just it's a question of which way the wind blows, give, which way events break. Can you give the short version of what you think they are? Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, I mean, major conflict over the South China Sea. Unlikely. But, uh, you know, uh, going overboard, provoking Taiwan, us uh, spanking them hard, economically speaking, them acting out economically, that could absolutely happen. Uh, a trading of ordinance somewhere in the South China Sea, uh, minor kind of feeling. How do they react? How do we react? 
That could absolutely happen. And guys could die. Ships could go down. And then there will be a hastily called international peace conference, etc. But tensions will remain. There are all sorts of possibilities. The world is not used to that sort of thing. It's been a long time since major powers have sunk ships. Yeah, yeah. The whole Russia-China thing is really interesting just because there have been a number of little groupings like that through the years. And, oh, yeah, we need to take a break pretty quick. But um, just whenever there's a dominant world power, strange bedfellows will get together to counter that power. And the minute they no longer need to be together, they'll flake. I mean, we saw it with the Soviet Union and the uh, the Chinese a handful of times in the 20th century. So the whole Russia-China thing, again, strange bedfellows, we'll just have to see. Plus, Putin is near to 70 years old. So that's a huge He's question mark. He's the sexiest man in Russia. He just won that award last week. That's a good point. He'll probably outlive us all, too. I mean, you see him shirtless on a rhinoceros. You know, that is a man full of the zest of life. Come on. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. St. John's professor allegedly fired for reading racial slur from a Mark Twain book. Uh, Hannah Fishthal said she was unaware of how racial politics have exploded at universities around the country. Well... She's older. She's quite a bit older, and so she's probably not, you know, paying attention to the very latest social trends on Twitter or whatever. But she was unaware that any mention of the N-word is going to do you in. So she's a St. John's University professor, allegedly been fired for reading a passage containing an N-word from Mark Twain's anti-slavery novel, Puddinghead Wilson, in her literature of satire class. She's teaching a literature of satire class to, in theory, some of our brighter minds in America to try to understand how that whole thing works. And is reading one of the great pieces of literature against racism and slavery. Been teaching there for 20 years, uttered the N-word once during a remote class back in February after she first explained to students the context of the word And she said she hoped it would not offend anyone. Mark Twain was one of the first American writers to use actual dialect, she said. His use of the N-word is used only in dialogues as it could have actually been spoken in the South before the Civil War when the story takes place. All perfectly grown-up description of what was going on at the time, how it was, uh, you know, a a move forward for literature, etc., well, and to write in any other style would be jivey and stupid. Can you imagine if, you know, the, the great Russian uh, authors writing about the, the pre-revolutionary times had not used the term Bolshevik and instead used the term jive turkey or something like that? I mean, it's just, it would be idiotic. The day after the class, she got an email from a student who said she had to abruptly leave the call because of the use of the inappropriate slur. It was unnecessary and very painful to hear the student wrote. Then you shouldn't be in college because you're not enough of a grown-up. Your brain can't handle the university-level uh, education. You shouldn't be at a university if you can't handle it. We've taught our children mental illness. The teacher, the professor, apologized to the student in an email and set up a private discussion online about the issue uh, to try to you know smooth things over. No, forget it. That's not enough. Sorry, you got to be canceled. Six students responded, including the initial complainant. Two defended the uh, the use of the N-word. The rest said the N-word should not have been used. And uh, she has, in theory, been fired for that. The university is claiming that's not the reason she was fired, but come on, Please. let's grow up. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's shocking and it's scary and it's idiotic. But logic has nothing to do with it. Power. It's all about power. We do not expect you to follow these laws. We expect you to not follow them, and therefore, you are a criminal. And we can take your job. We can take your power. Critical race theory isn't a theory. It's a a series of tools. She's a series of weapons. This particular professor is the daughter of Holocaust survivors, by the way. And she said, I never thought this would happen to me. I'm one of the last people who should be accused of racism. I know where it leads, and I know where it ends. Every class I teach teaches the evils of stereotyping, but... She said as the Red Guard dragged her in the street and beat her finally to death. Hey, lefties, if like you're a normal, normal, classic liberal lefty, you need to fight back against this. Oh, yeah. Because we can't. Those of us on the right can't. We're just, well, of course, racists want to use the N-word. No, you need to fight for it and say, look, having a discussion of a word is not racism. Let's be grownups here. Yeah, that's just, it's astounding. But, is and get, again, read anything Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt have written um, uh, about how we have taught our children mental illness. We've taught them that they should fall to pieces if anybody hurts their feelings in the slightest. That if a magic incantation, a magic word like the N-bomb is used, they should be devastated. And if they're not, they're a racist. How do the universities themselves not stand up to it and just say, look, I'm sorry you're offended. We're not going to fire the university professor. We talked to her, but we're not going to fire her. Because the rabid mob will come for them next. It's cowardice. Uh, in some cases, it's a lack of understanding of what's happening. They just hear, well, racist, anti-racist? Well, I'm an anti-racist, because that sounds good. There's just It's a combination of ignorance and cowardice. Armstrong and Getty. From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. And now, here's Armstrong and Getty. So I've talked about this book before. Um, It's called The 100-Year Marathon, written by Michael Pillsbury. You might not recognize that name, but he has been involved in the U.S. government and dealings with China going way back to Nixon. In fact, he was uh, a big deal in terms of the, quote, opening of China. Okay, so he's not like a writer. He was a diplomat, a guy involved in opening China. Yeah, absolutely. And so the opening of China, which is that phrase has been used my entire adult life. And the and the way the politics and the history of this has been written is the United States under the tutelage of Richard Nixon, who was who was a very smart geopolitical strategist, but he found a way to negotiate and this and that with Henry Kissinger's help. We found a way to figure out psychologically how we could get into China somehow and finally go over there and talk to somebody and open China, Nixon opened China, and it was good for the world. Well, what Michael Pillsbury now says, and that's what he believed was going on all these years, he has since determined that, no, they uh, they opened the door and figured out a way to get us to come in and go along with their plans and build up their country, their economy, and their military so that they could overtake us. It was all a ruse to bilk the West was, while remaining a communist totalitarian state. From the beginning, it wow. was a, from day one. The whole Nixon going to China thing wasn't an amazing political uh, ma- magic trick by the brilliant U.S. politician. No, it was China bringing us in to take advantage of us. 
Wow. And this Michael Pillsbury wrote this book, The 100-Year Marathon, that since uh, the, the start of the communist-led uh, country in 1949, they've had a 100-year plan to replace us as the superpower in the world. And they're screaming that direction, all with our help. I'll read uh, just one of the reviews of the book before I get into the story that I want to tell you that I think is so damned interesting. Um, and I hope you do, too. Um, Pillsbury explains how the U.S. government has helped, sometimes unwittingly, sometimes deliberately, to make the China dream come true. That is, of replacing the U.S. as the world's superpower. And he calls for the United States to implement a new, more competitive strategy. China's ambition to become the world's dominant power has been there all along, virtually burned into the country's cultural DNA. I don't, I don't think we fully understand what that means. Um, the FBI director said it very well last year, Director Ray, that it, they have a whole of society goal. Whether you're a child, whether you're a construction worker, whether you're a member of the Communist Party, the whole point of being Chinese is to become the dominant force in the world. I think if we got knocked down hard off of our pedestal, we would understand that feeling. Anyway, so I'm going to read this long story from uh, the opening of this book, The 100 Year Marathon. And um, I will be uh, doing interpretive dance uh, to interpret the story. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's radio, but take my word. He opens with an old Chinese saying that is, deceive the heavens to cross the ocean. That is what they have been doing for quite some time. At noon on November 30th, 2012, beneath a clear late autumn sky, Wayne Clow, the white-bearded, affable secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, appeared before a collection of cameras and microphones. As he spoke, a cold wind blew across the National Mall. The audience stood bundled in their overcoats as representative of Secretary of State Hillary Clinton held aloft a mysterious gold medal. She got Hillary as Secretary of State holding up the gold medal for all to see. It's the Smithsonian's honored guest that day, that was the famed Chinese artist Kai, who I don't really know, but doesn't matter, who had been feted the night before at a Tony Gala inside the gallery of the Smithsonian's National Museum of Asian Art, an event co-hosted. Um, no, 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 no that, that's an aside. Some 400 guests, among them House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, um, a bunch of other uh, business types, the 74-year-old widow of the Shah of Iran. They all clinked glasses to celebrate the Chinese-American relationship and to catch a glimpse of Kai, this amazing artist who had won international acclaim for his awe-aspiring fireworks display during the opening ceremony of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Oh, right. I think we yeah. all remember that, and it yeah. was amazing. And that was one of the first hints in retrospect that this country is for real. It's crazy what you can pull off with slave labor. And gazillions of dollars in uh, all kinds of breaks that the world gives you. Kai was known to celebrate Chinese symbols with performance art and had once used lighted fires to extend the Great Wall by 10 kilometers so it could be better seen from space. (laughs) The gala raised more than a million dollars for the Smithsonian and made the social pages of various newspapers and magazines. The following day, as Kai was introduced, he was dressed in a Western-style suit, gray overcoat and orange-red scarf. A trim, handsome man with graying hair, he looked out upon the mall and the subject of his latest piece of performance art, a four-story tall Christmas tree decorated with 2,000 explosive devices. As Kai twisted a handheld trigger, his audience watched the tree explode before their eyes, with thick black smoke emerging from the branches. Kai twisted the trigger again, and the tree exploded a second time, and then a third. 
The five-minute display sent pied needles across the vast lawn in all directions and dense black smoke, symbolizing China's invention of gunpowder, billowing up the facade of the Smithsonian's red sandstone castle. It would take two months to clean up the debris and the residue <laughs> left by the explosion. Now here's Michael Pillsbury, the author, who understands what's going on, uh, explaining it. I don't know if any of the guests contemplated why they were watching a Chinese artist blow up a symbol of the Christian faith in the middle of the nation's capital less than a month before Christmas. In that moment, I'm not sure that even I appreciated the subversion of the gesture. I clapped along with the rest of the audience. Perhaps sensing the potential controversy, a museum spokesman said the work itself is not necessarily about Christmas. Indeed, the museum labeled Kai's performance simply explosive event which, if one thinks about it, is not much more descriptive than what Kai called it on his own website, Black Christmas Tree. <laughs> Secretary Clinton's aide waved the gold medal for the press corps to see, and Kai smiled modestly. He had just been given the State Department's Medal of Arts, the first of its kind, which was presented to the artist by Clinton herself, along with $250,000, courtesy of the American taxpayer. Oh. The medal was awarded, she said, for the artist's contributions to the advancement of understanding and diplomacy. Kai seemed to agree with the sentiment, all artists are diplomats, he said. Sometimes art can do nothing that politics cannot. The point of all this is that China sent an artist over here, blew up a Christmas tree, the symbol of Christianity and everything that is American, a month before Christmas, and we all cheered it and gave him a check for a quarter million dollars and this award. That's how blind we've been to what they are doing. Such childlike, I don't know, subservience, anxiousness to please. In retrospect, it's hard to believe it even happened. Yeah. It, you know, it reminds me a lot of Stockholm Syndrome. Just there's a big, mean guy, and you're really praying you'll stop being big and mean. And so you'll do anything, anything to please him, to be friends. Please, can't we be friends? Meanwhile, the mean guy is utterly premeditated and merciless. So, uh, Pillsbury writing again, I wanted to investigate Kai and his works of art a little more closely after watching this. I didn't bother reading the English articles proclaiming Kai's genius, but rather what the Chinese were saying on various mandarin led language websites ah, yes. about one of their most acclaimed citizens. Kai, it turned out, had quite a large following in China. He was and remains arguably the most popular artist in the entire country. And his fans are nationalists and applauded him for blowing up Western symbols before a Western audience. Wow. He was doing that for a crowd back in China that understood exactly what he was doing. He was going right to Washington, D.C., the capital of the evil United States empire, and blowing up their Christian symbol in front of them while they applauded. Wow. Isn't that a wild? He walked into our house, took the dinner we served, smashed it in our face, and we thanked him for it and wrote him a check on the way out. He talks about the various generals and admirals and, uh, and uh, government hardliners who praised what he did on uh, on websites. Wow. Wow. We can be such suckers. I would say. I mean, you are. It, that's embarrassing. I, you know, That's the second time I've read it on the air. It embarrasses me that we're that stupid. Hillary Clinton holding up the medal. Isn't that fantastic? He just came to Washington, D.C. and blew up a Christmas tree in our nation's capital right before Christmas. Isn't that fantastic to show that we're a decadent society that needs to be overtaken by China? Did she get that medal made at the same place she got the reset button made? Yes, yes, yes. You know, Harry, crazy. How how do you get that blinded? It'd be like if we'd had Osama bin Laden come blow up a Christmas tree before Christmas. 
Right, right. Well, in spite of what some people will tell you, the American people are a kind and open-hearted people, generally speaking. You're nice to us. We want to be friends. And and sometimes we're bad at it. Henry Kissinger, speaking of Kissinger, once said that uh, America is like a big, friendly dog. We want to be friends, but we're so big, sometimes we wag our tail and we smash stuff. Or, or I would say that anybody who offers us a hot dog immediately becomes our best friend. We're a Labrador retriever in a world where we really ought to be more of a, a, a sheep dog, more territorial and protective. We just got suckered. Uh, he writes in the book, which just came out, what, a year or two ago, even now, years later, Chinese bloggers are enjoying the spectacle of their hero destroying a symbol of the Christian faith, only a stone's throw from the U.S. Capitol. The joke, it appeared, is very much on us. Well, and our nation's elite thanked them for it. Yeah, and he did a little research, and uh, it turns out that we did no investigation into this guy's background and his shtick. If anybody had spent... Even a couple of hours, probably, on the Internet Googling around, they'd have figured out, oh, his thing is he goes around the world destroying symbols of capitalism and Christianity to uh, to bolster the argument for communist China. You know, there is a little bit of truth, depending on who you're talking about, that there are some people on the right side of the aisle who can be xenophobic. Uh, it's an accusation that's thrown around way too often and way, way too casual casually but there's you know a shred of truth to it i will tell you this that was a that incident you just described is a beautiful example of the left's xenophilia if it is foreign they embrace it they love it it's beautiful it's important it's vital we must praise it we must invite it we must thank it we can never ask any critical questions it's a cult of xenophilia let me read a couple of more the uh, proverbs that he mentions in this book um, the ancient proverb that they believe in China is cross the sea in full view, or in other words, hide in plain sight. It's one of the 36 stratagems, an essay from ancient Chinese folk- folklore. All these stratagems are designed to defeat a more powerful opponent by using the opponent's own strength against him without him knowing he's even in a contest. And that's what China has been doing for decades. Wow, that's exactly what's happening. And we're just now kind of understanding that. Yeah. Well, if there's an encouraging note, it's that it seems that uh, the awareness has come to the people, the media, the government, both parties, I think. I don't think the Biden administration will do anything nearly as humiliating and pathetic and and damn near suicidal as the Obama administration did. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. I got Armstrong and Getty Show. Who's got a calculator? What's 1.3 billion divided by 17,000? 140. So they're <laughs> because they're going to spend 1.3 billion dollars to fight the homeless situation in San Francisco, and the highest number that activists use is 17,000. The most recent city count was about 8,000. That seems like an awful lot of money to throw at 8,000 homeless people. I mean, there are too many homeless people. It's miserable to walk around San Francisco. Anybody who's done it knows there are way too many homeless people. But $1.3 billion? What's the math come out on that? Los Angeles is committed to spending over a billion dollars on the homeless situation in L.A. as well. Just a quick show of hands, a little uh, mini poll here. How many of you are against spending any money uh, to help homeless folks? to deal with them, including the mentally ill. 
those who can't take care of themselves, that sort of thing. Virtually nobody, right? Here's our point. Make the expenditures successful. Make them hold the, the, the spenders of the dollars accountable for actually solving problems and have your policy reflect reality, not what you're congratulated for saying there in your salons of power and your university campuses and among activists, not policies that make you feel good, policies that actually reflect reality. Did you do the math, John? Uh, yeah, I got about 76000 per. Yeah, so if you use the highest number that activists come up with, it's about $76,000 per homeless person. If you use the city's number, which is 8000 so roughly half, so it'd be twice as much money, you're going to have about $150,000 per homeless person. Well, that's probably appropriate because, I mean, for instance, L.A. will uh, let you live in a wheelbarrow, but it costs $75,000 per wheelbarrow somehow in L.A. <laughs> anyway, this is so interesting. It was published originally in the Denver Post. Mike Kaufman, who is the mayor of Aurora, Colorado, uh, describes that he and the mayor of Denver and the mayor of Lakewood, which are all uh, cheek bajowl there, uh, wanted to develop a metro-wide approach to the growing regional problem of homelessness. And he decided to go and be homeless for a few weeks, actually. He said, I'd never experienced life in an encampment or a shelter to better better understand the challenges and have more informed discussions about resolving them. (laughs) Imagine that. You'd never make it on the West Coast, you fool. So he decided to learn everything he could about it. He writes, during my experience, I presented myself as a homeless veteran. I am a veteran and stayed in one shelter in Aurora, two shelters in Denver and in an encampment in the vicinity of Lincoln and Spear in downtown Denver. A town that Jack was uh, banned from for life, as I remember. Yes, for urinating in a parking <laughs> lot. Yeah, well, you'd fit in these days. It's funny, you're just ahead of your time. Uh, to the credit of the shelters, writes the mayor, every time I went to a new one, I was asked if I wanted help from a menu of services, ranging from mental health therapy to drug and alcohol counseling to job placement. I was impressed by the range of services offered to anyone wanting to improve their circumstances. In the shelters, I observed three categories of people experiencing homelessness. This is in the shelters now. The mentally ill. The chronically homeless suffering from drug and alcohol addictions and those displaced by economic circumstances who were finding work and using the shelter as a temporary means to save enough money to get back on their feet. In the encampments, the experience was entirely different. Okay, so let's move on from the folks in the shelters who you almost never see. And let's move on to what we have coldly called bum and junkie camps. What was surprising to me about the shelter population and the encampment inhabitants was that I found them to be two very distinct groups that never intersected. Yeah, I know. I know. I I got a friend who's a homeless and has been for years off and on. And he, that's one thing he said about the, the, the people refer to homeless like we're all one thing. He said there's there's multiple crowds that never interact. The mayor writes, I never found a shelter person who had stayed in an encampment and an encampment inhabitant who had ever stayed in a shelter. The encampment inhabitants tended to be much younger than those in the shelters. Many of them reminded me of the countercultural hippie movement of the late 60s and 70s, where dropping out of society and living in a communal setting with the common denominator being drug use defined their movement. Only for that generation, it was largely marijuana and hallucinogenic drugs. For the encampment generation today, the drug use is much more serious with the dominant drug being crystal methamphetamine it was common to see these young people shooting up or smoking meth in glass pipes i'm sure there's uh, some fentanyl working its way there too Um, uh, but back to the mayor's uh, 
piece. The advocates for the encampments want us to believe that the reasons why the encampment inhabitants never access shelters are because they are afraid of the congregate living arrangements during a pandemic or are concerned about having their few possessions stolen or fear for their safety. Nothing could be further from the truth. In the shelters, I always felt safe, I was always required to wear a mask, and was constantly reminded about social distancing, and I never had anything stolen from me. In the encampments, I never felt safe, no one ever wore a mask or even concerned themselves with social distancing, and I had a number of items stolen. The real reason why the encampment inhabitants refuse to access the shelters is simple. The shelters have rules. One rule in particular keeps the encampment inhabitants out of the shelters, and that rule is that drugs and drug use are prohibited. I know that my observations about the encampments hit a raw nerve with many of the so-called advocates for people experiencing homelessness because they did not comport with their narrative that these individuals are there through circumstances beyond their control and that the encampment lifestyle is not a choice. I disagree. My observations about the encampments have reinvigorated an important debate because, here you go, we will never be able to solve the problem of the encampments if we cannot first accurately describe the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Colorado can still handle reality. That's good. They haven't gone so blue yet that they're in unicorn land like certain other states. Good for you, Mike. Well done, sir. So if the people in the tent under the overpass look like junkies to you, that's because they're probably junkies. And I will continue to call them bum and junkie camps. They're not brave homeless people. They're junkies. (laughs) 